Stay tuned for Occupied Territory, America, with Mike Fader. This is Occupied Territory America, and uh, this is Mike Fader. We're here every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. If you want to participate um, off the air in another way with this ongoing political conversation, you just have to go to Occupied Territory on Facebook. <clears throat> if you, you know, if you're not on Facebook, I'm working on figuring that out. But still, for right now, go to Occupied Territory and Facebook, and you can participate post responses to things I said on the show, um, post anything about any issue you want. Also, you want to get in touch with me and to respond to me, you can go to my website, which is FaderFiles, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com, FaderFiles dot com. You can hear what else I do on the radio, books I've written. Sign up for my mailing list and you can get in touch with me. Uh, do we have our guest on? Hello. Hi. Uh, sorry, we're starting a little late, Judy. Um, we have Judy Bellow with us. She's a charter member of the uh, Upstate New York Coalition to Ground the Drones and End the Wars. Um, if you Can you hear me? Yes, I just, can. Okay, just want to check it out. Uh, if you notice, the president the other night um, was addressing the nation and talking about how we should, uh, you know, bomb Syria and launch cruise missiles into Syria because they kill children over there. And the same day that he was talking... Uh, we got yet another report, which we get every two to four weeks, that one of his drone strikes that he personally approved blew up five children. So here's a man who is basically a serial killer of children who is denouncing somebody else as killing children and that we have to come to the rescue. So if you can compute that in your head, good luck to you. Uh, Judy, uh, who is joining us here... Um, can you tell us about the Upstate Coalition to Ground the Drones and End the Wars? Yes. Um, we have uh, been working together for uh, several years now. Um, we are large, Our actions are largely centered around um, Hancock Air Base, although we have participated with Code Pink. Uh, I and uh, uh, another member of our group went to Pakistan last fall to talk to the victims of drone attacks and to talk to uh, Noor uh, Badham, who photographs the children who were killed in the drone strikes there. So Hancock, Hancock is upstate New York, right? Hancock is in, outside of Syracuse, New York. It's a major hub for Reaper drone training and for uh, flying Reaper drones over Afghanistan. And um, the latest uh, update of our uh, or upgrade of their situation over at Hancock is that they will now be flying drones that are actually parked at um, at uh, Fort Drum, which is just a little north of Syracuse in New York State, for those mm -hmm. who don't know the state. Mm -hmm. And um, they're flying them across essentially along the border of Lake Ontario and down as south as far as Syracuse, which is like 
you know, a fair distance south of the lake, whereas Rochester, where I live, for instance, is right on the lake. Well, so, let, me, let me ask you this question, uh, because I noticed this in some of the material I printed out about your group. Um, yes. You're saying that these drones are flying domestically. Is this for training purposes or other purposes? At the moment, it's for training purposes, but I'll, uh, uh, that's actually the drones from Hancock are being flown for training purposes. There is a base in the Midwest where they're flying uh, drones along the Canadian border to surveil the border. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of a different thing. My concern is that um, that they're training, uh, they're using these drones for different kinds of training, not only to train the operators, but also to test the equipment and to um, and to also train the, um, what do I want to say, to test the equipment that they're using to fly them safely with other um, air vehicles around them. For instance, um, a couple of years ago, the FAA was tasked to um, go out and by 2015 have a full program in place so they could fly drones in civilian airspace. Well, it never happened, as far as I know, because yes, it just wasn't possible. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not possible to integrate into our already crowded civilian airspace a bunch of vehicles uh, with untested equipment for flying, and they're large and they're slow, mm-hmm. so that, you know, they put a real risk in civilian airspace. But uh, this is a secondary issue for us. Our primary issue is actually what you talked about in your introduction, which is that the um, that they are killing um, innocent civilians, children, women in Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Somalia, Yemen, all over, uh, essentially uh, all over the uh, sort of Southwest Asia and Northern Africa um, to... Uh, Basically, they say that they're targeting an individual, mm-hmm. but even in the cases where it might be a valid individual to target, and I have trouble actually wrapping my mind around that, because if a person can be captured, if you know where they are, mm-hmm. and say in Pakistan, you could say to the Pakistani military, go get this guy for me. I know where he is, for instance, because uh, but the, the part but the, of Pakistan... The where we're bombing is sort of walled off from the rest of Pakistan, but the military has free access. But the uh, the military, I just throw in some devil's advocate stuff here. You know, sure. To, you know, okay, but the military in Pakistan would say the same as the military in Afghanistan. And in Afghanistan, we can see clearly that the uh, military is uh, lackluster at mm-hmm. best and will, you know, if we were actually not there at all, it would be mm-hmm. Taliban country in two weeks. Right. So the military is not doing it, is not capable of finding these people that we say are terrorists. In Pakistan, they have all kinds of complicated reasons and also some inability to find these people who are terrorists, which is why our government, uh, which is not you and me or the American people, but our government says that it has to use these drones because there's nobody on the ground who they can send to capture these people. That's their well, response. Yeah, I want to respond to that. First of all... Um the issue isn't whether they're competent. The issue in Pakistan, anyway, is whether we agree, first of all, on whether a person is a terrorist. And second of all, Pakistan's kind of got their back to the wall on this one, and, and I think that they do have actually a very competent military there. Unfortunately, it's more competent than the civilian government right. uh, at the moment and has been for some time. But some of that is America's doing. I mean, we've meddled in their affairs for many years, and we've supported every military dictator that's ever taken power in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. 
So, so that is our own doing. But I would say to you, if, if Pakistani people, maybe you can't trust them, but if they actually couldn't find someone on the ground, what makes you think that Americans who don't have anyone on the ground are going to be able to do that? And if you look at the images, I don't know how many of your uh, listeners have ever looked at, please go, go to YouTube and look at the images of what a drone sees. Because uh, guys in the military do post these with some regularity. Actually, I have I, I have one that I'm going to put up after the show that an, uh, an ex-Vietnam vet who's in touch with some people, he put up, and it'll show you exactly what a drone sees and how a drone kills. Right. And one of the things you'll notice is that the, the people are not like clearly, you can't, you know, they keep telling you you can see the face of a dime. But the truth is, when I look at all the feeds I've ever seen from a drone, you can't see the face of a person. Mm-hmm. All you see is that there is a person. It's kind of like, uh, for those of you who are old enough to remember, like the guys in Zelda, the video game, the little wizards, they go around that, like, really don't look quite like people. You know it's supposed to be a person. Mm-hmm. They're, uh, they're not discriminated. And they take these drones, and um, in many cases, um, they strike someone when they're sleeping in their bed at night in what they call a compound. Well, a compound is what they call their houses, you know, and their houses are extended family homes. I've been all over the Middle East and, uh, and as well as to Pakistan, and uh, people there in hot desert climates uh, and places where there is, you know, sort of a... For one thing, there's not a lot of wood, so nobody's going to build anything out of wood. Mm -hmm. Um, They live in a big walled-in complex, which is kind of like uh, a little village, an extended family within the village. And so when you hear the word compound, it sounds like a military establishment to people in America. Mm -hmm. But in fact, in reality, it's just an ordinary home there, and you see the little children playing out front or, you know, people coming and going, getting water and stuff. And, you know, there's no military people there. Well, obviously, these these terrorists don't play fair. They don't wear regular uniforms and carry flags and say, bomb me. Well, yes, but should we be bombing them in their house at night with 20 family members in the same house with them? I mean, if we really know they're there, shouldn't we wait for them to come out and be somewhere without that? In Pakistan, we have bombed many homes full of people. We have, uh, we, we have bombed a, a group of people, minors, uh, coming out for a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they saw a bunch of men emerge from under the ground. And they figured that's what they call like a signature strike. It looked like it must be terrorists because there's a bunch of guys coming out of a bunker. Well, there, there, there again, I mean, the, the, the moral insanity of calling something a signature strike, just because some people assemble in a place and look like what somebody sitting in the CIA says could be terrorists, then that's an excuse to blow people up. Well, and they, they killed a fam, an extended family who were traveling. They were probably trying to get away from somewhere, uh, from their, uh, from the violence in Afghanistan. And they got out, uh, of their van after, uh, after lunch and did their midday prayer mm-hmm. on their mats. And they said only, and again, this is our bias, something that we do not understand the culture. So how can we determine what does or doesn't look like a terrorist, you know, because our biases, like, say, only terrorists and weirdos get out of their van in the afternoon to, you know, 
uh, do a five-minute prayer. Well, then, but, the, then you've got the, uh, the incidents which you read about not infrequently where an airstrike or drones uh, kill children collecting firewood because they're picking up something that looks like from above a, wep- actually, a weapon. Yeah. That instance is very interesting because it reflects another thing that has happened a number of times that we know about, which is there's an airstrike. In, in that case, the children collecting firewood, the case that I know of anyway, they were killed by um, people in uh, helicopter mm-hmm. uh, helicopters. So, for one thing, the people who killed them should have recognized immediately that they were children. But leaving that aside, the attack was called in by a drone. So these helicopters were given orders based on something someone in a drone saw, which, as I say, they can't really differentiate clearly what they're seeing. The helicopters went in because they'd been given an order to attack. They went ahead and did it, even though they could clearly see that they were children. So let, let me just re-identify you. It's Judy Bellow is who you're listening to, Judy Bellow, and she is a charter member of the Upstate Coalition. That's Upstate New York. Upstate Coalition to Ground the Drones and End the Wars. So two questions here. Your position is, as far as you're concerned, we shouldn't be sending these drones anywhere in any country at all. Um, yes, and I'm not, my position, however, is not to say that there aren't civilian uses for drones that, um, that might be suitable. Mm-hmm. My position is to say that using drones for war, and, um, and especially in the case where we're not at war with the country that, um, we're using them in, so we're attacking people, basically, we're using them to cheat the system. Mm-hmm. We're using them to attack people in places where we're not allowed to attack people. But even using them in wars is a very dangerous thing uh, because uh, they're not as discriminating. You're being lied to if they tell you they are, and that they are, um, and that they are easily. Drones are not like an atom bomb. They are not high science. Mm-hmm. They are just sort of a a really clever use of very common technologies. Mm-hmm. So that means. And, and in fact, we are selling drones all over the world. Israel is selling drones to even more countries, some of which we don't sell them to. Mm-hmm. And China is uh, making their own version of drones and trying to pick up periphery. And what I want to ask is, what if everybody just starts sending drones over other people's territory shooting at them? I mean, you know, because there's no – what they have – what our government, the stance they've taken is that the drones – don't count in the rules of war and the rules of international sovereignty. Oh, that's well, that's that's pretty convenient. Well, let me let me ask you another question. A lot of people, you know, this is a radio show, and mm-hmm. it's, what I do on here is talk and interview guests and urge people to do things. But your group has actually taken some action. Can you describe the actions and the results? Yes. Um, well, we've um, had sort of our, our Gandhian wave. And there have been re- repeated um, die-ins at the front gate of uh, Hancock Air Base. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've also had other things like large educational events and things like that. But the thing that's ongoing and that we're known for are these um, protests, these uh, pacifist protests at the gate of Hancock. Mm-hmm. And uh, people have been arrested every time they arrest everybody they can get. I was in the first group of 38 and there are a lot of uh, people who've been arrested more than once there, and there are also uh, new people coming in all the time and taking a stand. 
And it's a very interesting thing. And I, I said I like that your program is about occupying because, mm-hmm. in a way, we're like uh, civilians wanting to occupy the law, wanting to take back the law uh, from a, a sort of distorted, uh, uh, elitist uh, group. So when we get arrested at the base, we're usually not doing anything very... And in fact, in many cases, like the Hancock 38, the roads were already closed because there was another protest going on. Mm-hmm. There, we were absolutely not barring anybody from anything. We were all arrested for, um, you know, um, yeah. What what, what was the what was the charge? Blocking the roads. Well, it was. Um, I'm trying to think. It's just a violation. Uh, yeah, was, I'm, we I'm also sure. were charged, and more recently, more people have been charged with obstructing governmental administration. <laughs> but um, really. Yeah, disorderly conduct was the charge. Wait, and that wait, means wait. that basically yeah. a policeman said, get out of here, and, and we didn't go. So it's the state police that arrest you? No, it's um, actually uh, it's a mixture lately. Lately it's been a mixture of state and uh, local police, but initially it was only local police. And what's been happening over a period of time, and I don't know why, maybe there were like four or, four or five uh, instances when people were arrested last year, and there's actually only been two this year, uh, one in February and one in April. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing that's happened, uh, well, they, you know, they used to try and get people to go away by offering conditional discharges. In other words, don't come back in a year and, you know, you won't have a penalty. But right. since we wanted to go to trial and talk about the drones, nobody took their uh, conditional discharges. Instead, we had a trial and talked about drones. Mm-hmm. So... Then they what was said, well, it? Was how it? How the heck are we going to get rid of these people? So they uh, they decided to have give us all orders of protection. No, no, wait, 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 wait. You're not getting the order of protection. Somebody else is, right? Right. Well, we are. I don't know how to phrase this to make the legal phrasing right, but the person being protected. Uh, there have been two people that uh, my order of protection is for Earl Evans, who is like one of the commanders on the base and other people are getting orders of protection for the main commander on the base but the bottom line is uh, especially when the one for earl evans because we were the first group that got him we go so earl so really evans, so we, what's 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 happening is that the uh the uh, commanders of this military base where they're launching where they're flying the drones in afghanistan and training people with these drones where they're actually flying drones to kill people the commanders of this base surrounded by military and military police and weapons and barbed wire and walls needs an order of protection against you and other people hurting them right oh that's okay so they're really scared of you huh I guess so. Well, anyway, the bottom line is these orders of protection have, um, they're, they're, they're really a terrible thing to do. For one thing, because they are an abuse of what an order of protection is. Right. And so any legal action we take to protect ourselves has the potential to undermine this very important law that's in place to protect people who really need protection. So it's been a very, uh, so we're still working on le- different legal avenues of mm-hmm. how to confront this. But this is a very serious uh, First uh, Amendment abuse to use an order of protection, which implies, and you can read the forms, I and mean, mm-hmm. you can go online and get the forms you have to fill out to get an order of protection. Right. It implies violence. 
Now, they're used uh, routinely everywhere, uh, and I know because I worked in New York as a probation officer, they're routinely used generally by women uh, who are being abused by men. Right. And to do this is a clear, as you say, is a clear, sneaky, cowardly violation of your right to free speech. Let me ask you this, because we only have a couple of minutes left. Uh, yeah. when, when you when you do speak your piece uh, at the base or in a trial, does you get do you get any coverage whatsoever from the media? Well, it, it's intermittent actually. The first big trial we had went on, if you can believe this, for fifty hours, hmm. and um, it was uh, over a period of a week, and um, we got a lot of coverage all over upstate New York. It was glorious. We really, I would say at that time in 2011, hardly anybody knew what a drone was. And when we were done, everybody knew what Hancock Base was and what a drone is. Lately, it's been a little harder to get the level of coverage because there's a lot of competition for information about drones. Mm-hmm. And also because um, the... Uh, one of the things that I find upsetting, and actually I talked to some people who are um, lawyers in other uh, states, mm-hmm. and they were very surprised, is that no one, no press is allowed in the courtroom during the testimony. Really? Really? Yeah. Why is that? So, Why is that? Uh, they said it's to protect the privacy. This is, everything they say is gobbledygook. The privacy they, of who? Of the people testifying. Well, and initially I could see, okay, so they don't want to have anyone in the courtroom to uh, listen, say, to the base personnel testify or right. the police. Right. But we want people to hear us, so why can't we have someone in? And they said, no, it's to protect the privacy of the everybody testifying in the courtroom. But I believe it's because they're basically trying to silence us. Mm-hmm. They're saying, okay, fine, talk all you want. Right, but but, but nobody's no going to no, be able to hear you. Right, you, you can you can say whatever you want, but no one will listen to you. Well, this is a clear violation of your free speech. I mean, it's it's too bad you don't have a whole lot of money. You could just hire somebody to knock this right up to the Supreme Court. These people are stepping on your right to free speech. Well, we are looking at we are actually looking at a federal suit. Right. One of my concerns about that, and, and we've talked about it, and we have you know we got to talk more with the lawyers, is that um, locally. There's a way to confront this as just the fact that they broke the rules of what defines a uh, order of protection. Right. But when we when we followed that avenue, um, we got uh, a judge who actually knows our judge, who we usually go before, and um, he basically said that the court has pretty wide discretion on these charges, and therefore the judge is within his discretion. Mm -hmm. So then we had this whole bunch of lawyers, some of them from Cornell Law School and places like that, come up and at our next motions date, and they put forward motions, and they said, um, well, and they gave all these examples of cases were orders of protection were struck down because they didn't right. meet the rules. We, we all, I and should they, say we only have about a minute left, so go okay, ahead. Okay, I'm, I'm, all right. So at any rate, the judge just dismissed everything and said, I, I have discretion. Mm-hmm. So that was the end of it. So now I guess maybe the federal, I, I don't want anything to happen to that law myself. Yeah, I understand, because it is there to protect women. Uh, sometimes yeah. it doesn't work at all, obviously, if somebody's... Uh, absolutely bound to violate it, but still it's an important law. To use mm-hmm. it against you is really just cowardly. So they break international law by murdering people in a cowardly mm-hmm. fashion, and then they break local laws and the United States constitutional law uh, by silencing you when you want to say something about it. So um, 
I don't know what to say. So why don't you give the the website uh, of your place if you have a website? Yes, we do. It's um, uh, upstatedroneaction.org. So it's all one word, upstatedroneaction.org. And please push some of the buttons. I'm going to rearrange it shortly. Mm-hmm. But um, if you press it, if, or if you select uh, the different links on the site, there's all kinds of stuff hidden behind the front page. Okay. Because obviously everything can't be on the front page. All right. But there's, you know, an extensive archive and just all kinds of interesting stuff there. So please, please go there. Okay. Thank you, uh, Judy Bello. And, uh, you know, it is time. You know, I, this is the second anniversary of the Occupy movement, uh, roughly. And it's good that you're doing that because just talk is never enough for these people. They only believe in brute force and uh, and bending the laws. Okay, thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot, Mike. Okay, Have Judy. A good day. You too. Uh, let's go to a. This is Mike Fader, and this is Occupied Territory America. Let's go to a break, and we'll come back with our next guest. This is Mike Fader again, host of Occupied Territory America, and we're going to speak right now to John Nichols, who is a longtime political blogger, and uh, he is the uh, Washington correspondent for The Nation magazine. Hi, John. How are you, Mike? Okay. Um, did you, now, John, also, I want to mention, he writes, he's a contributing writer for The Progressive and In These Times, and an associate editor of Capital Times, the daily newspaper in Madison, Wisconsin. And did you want to mention any uh, recent uh, co-authored, edited, or self-written book? No, I don't want to over-push it, but uh, we have a new book out, uh, Dollarocracy, mm-hmm. and it's an examination of uh, the rise of money in politics in combination with the collapse of media, mm-hmm. uh, making the argument that what has developed is something very, very different than just money in politics. That's a kind of an empty complaint. What we've really ended up with is in a situation where there is no check and balance from what we would traditionally have thought of as a as an independent or functional major media in the United States. Mm-hmm. You end up with uh, almost an ideal circumstance for propaganda. Those who pour money into our politics are able to not only define the message, but the direction of the debate. And we laid us out with a lot of detail on, on how it works. And the title again is? It's Dollarocracy. Dollarocracy. And, uh, okay. we will be uh, starting next week on September 15th, I believe, 16th. Mm-hmm. Uh, a national tour will be in about 80, we'll do about 80 stops around the country. Okay. Uh, you know, you know it's, a, it's a question if you don't miss the water to the well ones, it runs dry. I mean, a lot of people, I think, even when I was growing up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever, 
we all took it for granted that it didn't, if something was going wrong in Washington or if the law was being corrupted internally, that the newspapers would, be, would, would, would find it out for us. In other words, America has uh, generally tended to depend on newspapers to do investigative journalism and, uh, and, and express free speech criticism of the government, right? Well, that's exactly right. And what we argue in the book and what we have a cover story in The Nation coming out uh, next week on this issue, what we argue is that, that the, the left, progressives, people who, um, in fact, frankly, non-progressives as well, mm-hmm. who care about maintaining a small-D democratic state, um, focus too much attention on money and politics. Not that we don't think that's a vital issue. We think it's a central issue. But they neglect the collapse of the countervailing forces. And so what we've ended up with is not just a lot more money in politics. We've also ended up with a lot less control against it. Mm-hmm. The press does not, uh, the media doesn't serve its purpose uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, not the least of which is just a simple collapse of media, daily newspapers closing, tens of thousands of journalistic positions that existed a decade ago that no longer exist, mm-hmm. whole areas of government not covered. So that's that. And then the other side of it that we, we deal a lot with is the, um, the collapse of the courts, the notion that, uh, that our judicial system might serve as a check and balance. Uh, we think there was a naivete that developed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where the courts actually were relatively moderate, even mm-hmm. at times a little bit liberal. And so there was a sense that, that they, would, you know, they would check and balance the excesses of uh, extreme wealth. That's no longer the case. It's quite the opposite. The courts are activists, and they're very much, at the highest levels, very much engaged in making it harder to vote mm-hmm. and easier for money to flow into politics. And, and so basically we, we look at these different developments and argue that uh, for listeners who are familiar with uh, the movie The Matrix, mm-hmm. you know, there's a famous scene where you, know, you take the pill and, and suddenly you wake up, you realize what's really going on. We're suggesting it's time to take the pill, uh, to take a serious look at what's going on and to recognize that a discussion simply about money and politics which is so vital, and that Bob and I, Bob McChesney, my co-writer and I, have been involved in for decades, uh, is not sufficient anymore. Mm-hmm. Nor is it sufficient to talk about uh, tinkering reforms, legislative initiatives, even things like transparency. Mm-hmm. That's not going to do it. We have to start talking about constitutional amendments, about genuinely bold, uh, sweeping changes. But you but, begin to claw democracy back. But you can't make any kind of constitutional amendment to. I, I'm saying you can't, but feel free, right, to respond. Oh, of but you, you can't make a constitutional amendment that forbids companies from aggregating huge amounts of media and consolidating them into uh, a handful of corporations. Can you make an amendment against that? Well, that we bizarrely enough, Mike. This is the incredible thing. That's already on the books. I knew it was a rhetorical. See, I knew it was a rhetorical question. 
That's I'm the sorry, law but... of the land. <laughs> so we don't need a constitutional amendment on that. What we would like to see is some enforcement. Um, but yeah, the... sorry, sorry, I lobbed you that once. But sorry. Yeah, I know it's so fun. Yeah. <laughs> but the the constitutional amendment. We talk about that. I, what we do want is progressives and and again people who are just you know small d Democrats to recognize that constitutional amendments are tools that have been used throughout our history to address major problems in America. We've done. 27 amendments. I mean, this is a common practice in American history, far more common than many of the things that, that we associate with this country. So what, 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 would, what would be the 28th Amendment to address the problem you're talking sure. about? The, the, first, the 28th Amendment should be, and it shouldn't be just one. We, we argue there's probably three or four that need to be done. The, the 28th Amendment ought to be a guaranteed right to vote and to have that vote counted. Mm-hmm. Now, that may seem separate from all these other discussions we're having, but if we do not make democracy itself sacred, if we don't make it secure, uh, then all the other reforms, all the other changes we do are, are transitory. Mm-hmm. And so you can't have a situation where the Supreme Court of the United States can tell you one day, oh, well, the Voting Rights Act doesn't apply in the way it used to, or where you can do... You know, draconian voter ID laws and all these other things. We need to have a guaranteed right to vote. And there's mm-hmm. a proposal to do that from Congressman uh, Keith Ellison and Mark Pocan. It's got a number of sponsors, including, I believe, John Lewis. Um, this is really important stuff. And so you begin there, but then you go to the next one. Uh, and the next one is where we start to get into the, 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 the meat of this. Uh, and that is one that uh, your listeners are surely familiar with, a proposal to... Uh, do a constitutional amendment that says money is not speech and corporations are not people mm-hmm. and the government has a right the governmental entities at the local state and national level have a right to regulate money in politics and that proposal is interestingly enough like the most popular proposal of the moment in america mm-hmm. 16 states have asked congress to act on it formally asked more than 500 communities and from Los Angeles to Chicago, big cities across this country, as well as small towns, have asked, petitioned Congress to act on this. So there's a real movement out there. Now, I'm not naive. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you, oh, we're on the verge of fixing all this stuff. We're nowhere near it. What we are saying is, and what we argue in this book and in, in all of our writing of late, is that this is the time to start talking about building a mass movement that seeks not just a one change, one fix, but a multitude of changes, a multitude of fixes. We speak to one another on an anniversary or near an anniversary of the Occupy movement. The genius of the Occupy movement was that when people came to it and they said, what do you want to fix? What's your your fix? They said, everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the right answer. The right answer for the 21st century is that we've got a, a, a... physical crisis in the body politic. It is much more sweeping than just one ailment, and we need a great big cure. That cure will involve long-term treatment, not just an immediate uh, intervention. Since you brought up Occupy, you know that one of the great criticisms of Occupy was that exactly what you just said, that they had too much on their plate, they were too diffused, they were too diluted, and they should have focused on one or two issues. Just mm-hmm. mentioning that. Yeah, I, t- I disagree. Mm-hmm. And uh, I respect the criticism, and I understand it. But what one of the 
things that, as somebody who covered a lot of Occupy and wrote mm-hmm. some, some initial pieces on it, uh, I think the reason Occupy captured the American imagination, and remember, very few activities of this kind have captured the imagination of the country so wholly. The President of the United States gave speeches referencing Occupy. Mm-hmm. That's an incredible thing when you think of the political food chain that, that, that has to be occupied, if you will, to make that happen. Uh, media was very, very focused on it. You had you know, something real happened here, and people in small towns across America, in my mom's hometown of Burlington, Wisconsin, they had a film series at the local theater. Uh, it was Occupy the, the movie theater. And they showed all Michael Moore films and things like that. You know, this thing was real, and it reached a lot of people. It did so because it didn't say, this is the limit of who we are. It but said, you- but, things but, are really wrong. We've got to do a lot. But, you know, speaking of the media, um, you know, this is sort of a, a conversation of uh, moving opposites, which is, I guess, the way life is anyhow. But, <laughs> I mean, we have, in New York City, for instance, the New York Times, along with a lot of other major media, either ridiculed the Occupy movement or ignored it. And since yep. you were mentioning the collapse of the media, this is an, a, a, an essential point of how it affected something badly, that the media either ignored something or ridiculed it. Absolutely. There's simply no question of that. Um, We don't have a media in our country that is engaged with, uh, let alone what it should be, which is delighted with uh, popular movements. Mm -hmm. I've been a journalist since I was 11 years old. I rode my bike up the main street of Union Grove, Wisconsin, and got a job at the weekly newspaper. Hmm. Um, and so I've done this all pretty much all my life. And uh, I can tell you that a free and honest journalism is gleeful at <laughs> the rise of, of popular movements when great numbers of people you know, step up and say they want to do something. That's a hell of a good story. Forget about you know, everything else. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Now, it could be that ultimately it becomes scary because maybe those popular movements are are not noble. Maybe they don't have as their ultimate end something that that everybody would like. You cover that, but also uh, also the, but maybe the, they are noble. You know? Also, they're not so popular with a lot of these conglomerates because one of the main points of a lot of these uprisings is to break up media conglomerates. Absolutely. So you know, but you know, uh, one thing that's encouraging, and I learned that from doing this show and doing the show on Sirius, there are. Hundreds, if not actually developing now, pushing close to a thousand very small podcast or Mm -hmm. small town radio stations, uh, which are all, because of the Internet, the genius of the Internet, available anywhere. Like in South Dakota, if you're broadcasting from Maine, people hear it in Australia. There is a tremendous rise because I know this show is 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 rebroadcast by several other small radio stations across the country. This is something that people aren't paying too much attention to, but it is. Uh, a, a new world out there. It's not just the Internet. It's small radio stations mm-hmm. broadcasting everywhere, you know. No, it's very hopeful. Yeah. And we write a lot about this in the book, uh, That you because know, our book is not just a, you know, a, a diagnosis of the crisis. It also proposes fixes. And one of the fixes we argue for is a massive infusion of support, and frankly, not just popular support, there's economic support for uh, independent community-based media, mm-hmm. and we've got to have. We, we it is it is a part of the answer, but I want to emphasize. You know, this is like going to the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. Knowing that there's a pill that cures your ailment 
doesn't mean that you're, that you're getting the pill and the cure is coming through. The reality right now is that the Internet, which we thought was going to free us, has actually, as has been well illustrated by the NSA scandal and other things, is often a tool to control us. It's not always, it's not, not everything we hoped. Mm-hmm. And it cuts both ways. The same is true with community media. Community media is all to the good, you know, as far as I'm concerned. I, it's not to say that. But the notion that there's enough of it at this point, that it is sufficient to counter the oh, overarching it. power of big media. Right. That's something we have to be conscious. We, are, we don't have the scale at this point to do what we would hope to do. Also, when, so, the, when the FCC yeah. is offering these, uh, these low-power licenses, which they are now in the process of handing out, I mean, it could just as easily go to Jesus Saves or the, the gun show. And that's fine. Yeah. I don't mind that. That mm-hmm. doesn't bother me at all. I, but what does bother me is the, the notion that this will be sufficient in and of itself. Mm-hmm. What okay. we have to do is recognize that most Americans still get the overwhelming majority of their news from uh, their local TV news, which is, which is atrocious in mm-hmm. most cases, mm-hmm. uh, from, you know, talk radio, from sources that, frankly, are very, very uh, skewed toward a defense of a status quo that, that gives us massive in- income inequality. Uh, and all sorts of other problems. So how do you now, tell, how do you yeah. inform this? I mean, you're not Paul Revere, right? How, it's, it's not it's not that far back, you know. How do you inform the people who are listening to this superficial, wrong-headed, deliberately, um, you know, deliberately uh, provocative in the wrong way media? How do you let them know that there's other media? Well, I think that that we do it much like Paul Revere. <laughs> I hate to tell you, okay. Paul Revere got on the horse. Uh, and rode from you know every Middlesex town and village because um, that was the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was, you couldn't like send a letter or or, or mail. So we do have to. I, I think we have to have a much higher regard, Mike, for um, the the town meeting, the the gathering of citizens, uh, right? And for all of the tools that we have are beginning to develop to communicate with one another: the Facebook page, the the Twitter account. You know, let's. Let's recognize, you know, what we've got, what we, what we do control, or at least to some extent control, and use it um, to spread the word. The fact of the matter is that we've always been outnumbered and outgunned, well, outgunned at least, maybe not outnumbered. Mm-hmm. And, and so the history of, of American politics is, is one of spreading the word, building up your own movements, uh, and doing something that gets strong enough that you overwhelm power, the money power. Mm-hmm. And if I give you an example, just in the last few days, last, last week or so, look at what's happened with the proposal for military intervention in Syria. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that, that up because I was looking for a segue. Right. I mean, speaking of a collapse of the media, uh, this is one of the most hopeful things I've seen in, I don't know, 20 years, that, especially being on the radio and commenting on these things, that uh, although there are some very weird bedfellows involved here, there is, a, there is a national grassroots, true grassroots uprising against the government's behavior as the likes of which I haven't seen in decades. It's a, this is exactly, and I do believe that when you write the history of the republic, that this, this last couple of weeks will be, we'll get, it, we'll get at least a good-sized footnote, maybe a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and let me suggest why. Even now, our media is covering this, at the highest levels, is covering this wrong. They are suggesting that the American people are war-weary, i.e., tired of all the wars. 
And I don't deny for a second that that's true. But I would suggest something else, uh, because the notion of war-weary says that the great mass of people, they're, they're sort of, you know, ill-informed, disengaged. They're just tired of something, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. No, I say they're war-weary. They're skeptical. It's not that they're ill-informed or disengaged. It's actually that over time, the realities of the Iraq intervention, uh, its deep failures, the realities of the, the Afghanistan intervention, its deep failures, and so many other elements mm-hmm. of our history going back so long have caused people to actually be skeptical. Which is a wonderful thing, because that's part of the essential DNA of democracy. It had disappeared, skepticism. It seemed to I have agree. disappeared. That, we should We should be celebrating Mm -hmm. the fact that the great mass of citizens have have done something that that James Madison, at his best, an imperfect player to be sure, but at his best, said was essential to democracy. He said, without free flow of information, the details you need, and the ability to ask questions and challenge, the American experiment would soon degenerate to a tragedy or a farce or both. Mm -hmm. I think we had tragedy and farce. Uh, in the early years of George Bush's presidency, and uh, and it it was terrible for the nation. I think today, um, because of that awful experience, mm-hmm. we have tens of millions of Americans, conservatives and liberals, Republicans and Democrats, who, for different reasons perhaps, come to the same conclusion, mm-hmm. and that is that they simply aren't going to get on board for a rush to war. Yeah, I agree. And by the way, you're listening to John Nichols, who is the Washington correspondent of The Nation. And can you mention the latest book again? Yes, it's Dollarocracy. Uh, it's out on Nation Books, uh, distributed by Basic Books, and it's pretty much everywhere. As part of this skepticism, which I also find extremely heartening, and there hasn't been that much, uh, there hasn't been that many bright spots in the last couple of decades. Uh, as, as part of the skepticism is the complete lack of belief in government statements about who did what. In other words, people are disgusted by the secrecy of the government. Mm-hmm. Disgusted. Mm-hmm. They don't. And it undermines you know. the ability of the government to actually rally the people. When it seeks to do so. And e- even if they need to do it for a good purpose. Yes. Well, that's what I'm saying. And, and can, I, can I offer yeah. this notion? I've covered Barack Obama for, you know, better part of 20 years. I covered him as a young politician coming up in Illinois back in the 1990s. And um, I, I think that, that even his harshest critics will tell you that for a variety of reasons, he is profoundly affected uh, by the images of damage done to children. Uh, you saw that in the response to Newtown, mm-hmm. uh, which really was quite, I think, highly engaged. Uh, and I think that it is fair to say that the images from Syria caused this president to respond in a, in a very humane and very engaged way. You really, I, feel, you really feel that, huh? Yeah, I give him credit. No, but let me finish the... Yeah, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I give him credit for that, and I think there's no reason not to. The challenge is that um, his response was to say, okay, you know, I can do something. I can do something. I'm good. I can do a military response, and I, I want to do that. I have the power to do that. Well, Mike, 220-some years ago, more than 20, The founders of the American experiment wrote a constitution and established structures to make sure that 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 personal response, I can do something, Mm -hmm. did not guide the nation. 
Right. And this is a very important revisiting of our founding moment. It was George Mason, one of the great authors of the Constitution, and, and also a skeptic as regards some elements of the Constitution, who said the purpose of the document was to clog rather than to facilitate war, to make it harder for the executive, the commander-in-chief, to take the country to war. I would submit to you mm -hmm. that we have had an amazing thing happen over these last few weeks. Uh, President of the United States determined that he wanted to take the country to, at least into a military intervention, and I think when you drop bombs you're talking about war. You call it a war, yeah. Yeah, and so we had a president decide to do that. Popular intervention, great masses of people and their elected said, hold it. We're not, we understand your sympathy, we understand your humane response, but we don't necessarily think that's answer. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily think that's the way to go. And because I think also the British Parliament said no, um, you ended up with a situation where the president blinked. Mm -hmm. He deferred to Congress. In other words, he acted the way that the founders uh, uh, intended the president to act. Yes. And the incredible thing is, this is the best part, Mike. This mm -hmm. is the amazing thing. Then when the president did blink, bow to Congress a little bit, not as much as I'd like, what happened? The process worked. Space was created. Massive popular opposition polls that showed people really were uncomfortable with this rush to war. Mm -hmm. um, led members of Congress to slow it down, to, to say, oh, I just don't think so. Let us, let's, not, let's not rush. Um, that created a, a, a political challenge, political crisis even for the president, um, forced an exploration of diplomatic responses. Don't doubt that there were real conversations at the G20. Mm -hmm. uh, and we ended up, we have ended up now, not with a resolution. Nobody right. should romanticize it. Right. But with, again, I think with the founders, at their best, imperfect players, intended. I, th I think, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I agree completely. Uh, I think what people should see, and this is expanding beyond all the media people, including the New York Times. I mention that because it's my hometown newspaper and, and whatever, you know, but yeah. <laughs> has a lot of power. What a lot of people are saying all over the place is, and this includes a lot of liberals or media or organizations that you might not think would say it is, that the president is wavery or weak. In other words, mm. what people see, I think what people need to understand, and I think a lot of people who listen to this show and other people do innately understand is, in this particular case, what, what is possible weakness on the part of the president is, in fact, democracy showing its face for a change. So, it, so, so well said, Mike. You know, it, 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 too bad that he, that no, he might, that, if he's sitting in the Oval Office saying, oh, my, I feel so bad, that's good for the rest of us. But let, no, me, let, let me take it a step further. But let me add just one thing before yeah, you do, because we only have a couple minutes left, and I'll give yeah. you the last word. But, you know, if he's so upset about the bodies of children, he needs to stop meeting every Tuesday to figure out who to blow up overseas. Oh, a lot of children have been killed by this man. I'm not, I would not... I know, I know you don't. I'm just saying that myself. No, no. Right. I, look, I'm, I, I sympathize with the concern you raise. I think it's a legitimate one. I am just telling you that we can give him some space here. We can say, you know, look, you can have a, a humane and concerned response, even if it is out of sync with other things that have happened, and still say that he doesn't have, 
he should not have the ability mm-hmm. to respond to his human, you know, his desire mm-hmm. without the consultation of Congress and the American people. Now, you Even see, you see, Mr. Noble. Kerry seems to be saying every time he says something, he seems to be saying something which is clearly anti-democratic and against what the founders said. He seems to be saying, and he virtually said this the other day when he was talking to Congress, he said, uh, to the Congressional Committee, right? Uh, Rand Paul was questioning him. Well, somebody's got to. I guess it had to be Rand Paul. <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do? So so he says, you know, well, well, you know, what you're telling us, let me see if I got this straight. And Kerry sort of more or less acknowledged it. We, we could vote against this resolution, and you're saying that the president might do it anyway? Did you notice that? Oh, I did. It's, and it's a, it's, it's a horrific uh, notion, and one that would be very, very damaging to Barack Obama, among among others, to the, also to the American experiment. Uh, but here's the critical thing: I, I would only I, I I sympathize with so much of what you're saying here, but I would I would offer this codicil if I could, okay. and that is this notion that it is weak to rely on diplomacy, <laughs> that it is weak to try routes that are different from war. I disagree with all my heart and soul. Mm-hmm. I think it's much harder to embrace diplomacy, especially when you are a military superpower, when you do have such, such frankly, easy, quick military routes, be it a drone, be it a bomb, be it a missile. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are so many ways to quickly, quote-unquote, deal with a problem. It yeah. is much harder to embrace diplomacy and Yet the American people, the great, the great mass of Americans, are saying, I think from bitter experience, mm-hmm. of recognizing that military responses have not particularly solved a lot of problems, that, that, that stronger response, that tougher and harder and longer term response of trying diplomacy mm-hmm. makes more sense. That's where real strength is. I would go, I, yeah. we're, we're just about at the end. I would say that the real weakness is to respond instantly with force. Anybody who's grown up with somebody who beats up kids or their... (laughs) And everybody knows down on the ground here where we all live, weakness is an immediate violent response. Strength, right? Strength is talking to people and putting up with all kinds of complex ideas and finding something flawed but is better than the other thing. That's where the real strength is. The real weakness is the violence. Um, And I... I hope that, uh, that I, I see a lot of people in Congress are relieved beyond words that they don't have to take this vote right away. Because, And also, I guess we're at the end of the show. We could go on forever. But it's <laughs> John Nichols. Uh, would you ever believe that uh, the uh, mafia leader, uh, former KGB colonel Vladimir Putin, is telling America how to behave and he turns out to be right? Well, I, I, I'm never in a rush to say that Vladimir Putin is right. But what I can <laughs> tell you is... That in the history of this country, we have found reasons to work with Moscow, uh, not okay. always because right. we trusted or loved him, but sometimes we had to. Well, I agree. I think he's put forth in his op-ed piece today in the Times a perfectly sensible way for America to behave in the world, no matter where it comes from. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, Mike. Okay. This is Occupied Territory America uh, with Mike Fader. You want to get involved, go to Occupied Territory on Facebook, or you can go to Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R, FaderFiles.com, 
And in the end, children, we all talk about children, are being killed all over the place and, uh, you know, orphaned and they are refugees and they're starving in the cold. You want to do something about it? Ten bucks, twenty bucks, whatever. Go to UNICEF. Just go to UNICEF. They really are the real thing. Give them some money. They save children's lives while the rest of the governments in the world going around killing everybody. It is a hopeful time for democracy, and it's a hopeful time for the Occupy movement starting in New York. Two years ago, it started in New York uh, City, that people occupied a public park. We are probably going to have a new mayor who's very liberal. I doubt he'll send the police to beat the living daylights out of anybody who speaks up against Wall Street. So it's interesting times ahead. We'll see you next week.